Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. In October of 1871, Chicago was a tinderbox. The city's 185 firefighters were exhausted, and things wouldn't get better anytime soon. In the last three months, Chicago had only seen an inch of rain, and the wooden structures and raised wooden sidewalks painted a picture of disaster. The Chicago fire was absolutely that. The fire swept through the city at an alarming rate, turning everything in its path to rubble and cinder. People scattered to escape the flames, grabbing what little they could. There were many people trying to flee the destruction via the Randolph Street Bridge. There are collisions between wagons, trucks, and people. Many lives are lost, and the level of damage and loss is almost unimaginable. All of this loss and destruction is in the past by the time the Columbian Exhibition opens in 1893, and as I'm sure was the case for many Chicagoans, there was a collective sigh and a sense of awe associated with the event. Columbus had arrived in the New World 401 years earlier, and Chicago had beaten out New York, St. Louis, and Washington, D.C. for the privilege of hosting the World's Fair. Chicagoans were so invested, in fact, in the idea of having the fair in Chicago, large crowds would gather in front of the newspaper offices and await the tallies to see who would win the prize of being host to the event. The city had hosted the Centennial Exposition in 1876, but the World's Fair would be far larger and feature a wide range of acts, new inventions, and speakers. From Chicago's City of the Century on PBS.com, quote, Daniel Hudson Burnham of the Chicago Architectural Partnership Burnham and Root, the chief of construction for the fair, enthusiastically adopted this proposal. Burnham then suggested that the greatest American architects of the time contribute designs for the buildings. The contributors included Richard Morris Hunt, who built the facade of the Metropolitan Museum in New York, Charles McKim, New York Public Library, Robert Peabody, George B. Post, the New York Times Building, Henry Van Brunt, Louis Sullivan, and William LeBron Jenny, Home Insurance Building of Chicago, among the first with a steel skeleton. The sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens, as artistic director oversaw the decorative program of the fair, which included works by Daniel Chester French, who later created the Statue of Lincoln for the President's Memorial, and the Impressionist painter Mary Cassatt. 
When the architects met in Chicago in 1891 to share their designs with one another, Olmsted noted, The general comradeship and fervor of the artists was delightful to witness and more delightful to fall into. Together they collaborated on a magnificent vision and enjoyed their own audacity in dreaming it up. St. Gaudens compared the group to the Italian Renaissance geniuses who built Florence. Look here, old fellow, he said to Burnham. Do you realize that this is the greatest meeting of artists since the 15th century? The neoclassical buildings of Hunt, McKim, and other Eastern architects stood around a basin in the Court of Honor. Sullivan's multicolored transportation building was off to one side. A mile-long commercial strip, the Midway Plaisance, provided entertainments nearby. The Court of Honor's buildings served as exhibition halls, housing the newest inventions and appliances for the home and farm, many of them powered by electricity. Visitors gawked at electric incubators for chicken eggs, electric chairs for executions, an electric sidewalk, an early fax machine that sent pictures over telegraph lines, electric irons, sewing machines, laundry machines, and Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, the first moving pictures. For many of the fairgoers, Edison's 14-year-old invention, the electric light bulb, was a novelty they had never seen before. That the court was lit at night was itself astonishing. The exhibits helped to demystify the many mysterious new inventions of the age. End quote. There were boat races, donkey races, international tug-of-war competitions, swim races in the lagoon, tightrope walking, parachute drops, and George Washington Gale Ferris's gigantic wheel ride, the first Ferris wheel ever built. Over the course of the exhibition, 1.4 million people paid 50 cents apiece and experienced two revolutions. The 250-foot diameter wheel brought riders higher than the crown on the Statue of Liberty. This was likely the closest that many of these riders would come to actually flying. On the midway, escape artist Harry Houdini entertained and mystified onlookers. Buffalo Bill Cody and his Wild West show delighted and amused. Now, Cody had apparently been denied a spot on the midway, but he set up on the outskirts and ran his show anyway, because fuck the police, I guess. And ragtime pianist Scott Joplin tickled the ivories. Americans experienced hamburgers and carbonated beverages and purchased a new invention called a postcard, which they could send to their friends or family and regale them of their time at the Columbian Exhibition. There were Hindu jugglers, beauty contests, and even a two-headed pig. And while all of this was going on, while the city delighted in the new ideas brought forth by this event, and ate their hamburgers, and laughed and basked in the glory of the white city, in the shadows a monster was lurking. A monster who would take advantage of the large crowds and use the climate to his own benefit. A living darkness that would soon open its mouth and scream. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast. The podcast your mama warned you about, or likely recommended you listen to. 
I'm hoping that it's more of the latter. This week I'll be taking you to the Windy City of 1893, the World's Fair, and introducing you to a particularly diabolical fellow. A man who saw the fair as an opportunity to swindle and to murder. A man by the name of Herman Webster Mudgett, otherwise known by his alias, Dr. Henry Howard Holmes. Before we get started this week, I'd like to thank Cindy Harper, the Director of Historical Research and Paranormal Documentation at Sweet Springs Sanitarium in West Virginia. The interview that I did with Cindy will be available on a future episode, but I wanted to express my sincere gratitude for the time that Cindy spent talking to me about Old Sweet, the paranormal happenings there, the fascinating story of the place, and the restoration efforts that are ongoing. Thanks, Cindy. I'm glad that I had the opportunity to chat with you. It's always a treat to meet a fellow paranormal enthusiast and to learn about a new haunted location. So say hi to the spirits for me. There'll be more info about Old Sweet when that episode goes live, but I do want to let you know that there's an effort to collect funds for the rebuilding and repair of structures at the sanitarium. If you'd like to help out, pop on over to sweetspringsresortpark.org and mash that donate button. And now, on with the show. Herman Webster Mudgett was born in New Hampshire in 1861 to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price. Both parents were descended from the first English immigrants in the area, and Herman was the third child. He had an older sister, Ellen, an older brother, Arthur, a younger brother, Henry, and a younger sister, Mary. There is some speculation regarding Mudgett's past and whether or not he exhibited the telltale signs of becoming a serial killer later in life. But there's little proof to substantiate such claims. There's a story of young Mudgett being locked in a doctor's office with a human skeleton, but Mudgett himself has told this story, and I find him to be a rather unreliable narrator. At age 16, Mudgett graduated high school and began teaching in Gilmanton and Alton. In 1878, he married Clara Lovering, who gave birth to a son, Robert, in 1880. Mudgett enrolled at the University of Vermont in Burlington, but left after only a year. He was 18 years old. In 1882, he enrolled in the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and passed his exams in 1884. While in attendance at U of M, he worked in the anatomy lab under chief anatomy instructor, Professor Herdman. Mudgett had also apprenticed in New Hampshire under noted advocate of human dissection, Dr. Noam White. Later in life, Mudgett would admit to using cadavers to defraud insurance companies. By 1884, Clara and Robert had moved back to New Hampshire to avoid Mudgett's violent outbursts, which were many. Apparently, some of his housemates had witnessed his behavior. Mudgett's next moves were meandering. He spent some time in Moore's Forks, New York, leaving quickly after he was under suspicion of being seen with a small boy who later disappeared. Mudgett claimed the boy had gone back to Massachusetts, and the authorities must have accepted his word as fact 
because there was no investigation. Mudgett left town after this incident. From there, he traveled to Pennsylvania and got a job at Norristown State Hospital, but he quit after a very short time. He also worked as a druggist in Philadelphia, but immediately, and a little suspiciously, left the city after a boy fell ill after having taken medicine prepared at the store. Mudgett again denied any involvement. From Holmes' own words, H.H. Holmes' biography, quote, About July 1st, one afternoon, a child entered the store and exclaimed, I want a doctor. The medicine we got here this morning has killed my brother or sister. I could remember of no sale that morning, corresponding to the one she hastily described, but I made sure that a physician was at once sent to the house, and having done this, I hastily wrote a note to my employer, stating the nature of the trouble, and left the city immediately for Chicago. And it was not until nine years later that I knew the result of the case. End quote. I'm not sure why Mudgett would run, unless he was guilty of the crime, or perhaps he was worried that his past deeds would be brought to light if authorities became involved. Right before his move to Chicago, Mudgett adopted the alias of H.H. Holmes, likely to cover his tracks and to avoid possible prosecution for his previous insurance scams. From Wikipedia, quote, In late 1886, while still married to Clara, Holmes married Myrda Belknap, born October 1862 in Pennsylvania, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Myrda, alleging infidelity on her part. The claims could not be proven, and the suit went nowhere. Surviving paperwork indicated she probably was never even informed of the suit. In any case, the divorce was never finalized. It was dismissed June 4, 1891, on the grounds of want of prosecution. Holmes had a daughter with Myrta, Lucy Theodate Holmes, who was born on July 4, 1889, in Inglewood, Chicago, Illinois. As an adult, Lucy would become a public school teacher. Holmes lived with Myrta and Lucy in Wilmette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago, tending to business. Holmes married Georgiana Yoke on January 17, 1894, in Denver, Colorado, while still married to both Clara and Myrta. End quote. By the time Holmes arrived in Chicago, he was already wanted for several insurance scams. Holmes would mutilate cadavers donated to medical schools for dissection in order to defraud insurance companies, claiming the already deceased individuals were the victims of some terrible accident. He was a con artist and a bigamist, and he fled from one town to the next to escape prosecution. In Chicago, Holmes set his sights on a pharmacy on the corner of 63rd and Wallace Streets and began working there but his eyes soon wandered to the location across the street where he would eventually begin building a large three-story structure that would take over an entire city block, contain more than 100 rooms, and would become known as the Murder Castle. It would contain a drugstore, retail space, and apartments, though Holmes' definition of apartment would eventually prove to be a little different. 
Holmes himself called it the World's Fair Hotel and said it would accommodate tourists visiting from outside the city who wished to enjoy the fair, but the building served a much darker purpose. Women seeking better opportunities came to the city in droves, and the large crowds gathering for the exposition would create a perfect storm for these women to disappear without a trace. During construction, Holmes would suddenly fire workers and hire new ones in order to keep the plans of the location a secret. He'd get one carpenter to build a wall and immediately let the man go, then refuse to pay him, claiming shoddy workmanship. The cycle repeated, all the while the building was being constructed. Holmes himself hid supplies that he had purchased on credit within the castle and then refused to pay his bills. From all that's interesting, quote, there were hinged walls and false partitions. Some rooms had five doors and others had none. Secret airless chambers hid underneath the floorboards and iron plate lined walls stifled all sound. Holmes' own apartment had a trapdoor in the bathroom, which opened to reveal a staircase, which led to a windowless cubicle. In the cubicle, there was a large chute that tunneled through to the basement. Spoiler, it wasn't used for dirty laundry. One notable room was lined with gas fixtures. Here, Holmes would seal his victims in, flip a switch in an adjacent room, and wait. Another chute was nearby. All of the doors and some of the steps were connected to an intricate alarm system. Whenever someone stepped into the hall or headed downstairs, a buzzer sounded in Holmes's bedroom." End quote. At one point, a large safe was purchased and a room was built around it. The safe would come to serve a nefarious purpose in suffocating victims who Holmes trapped inside, but the company came to Holmes demanding their safe back. He supposedly told them that they could have it, but only if they could get it out without damaging the room around it. By 1892, the murder castle was complete, just as the grounds of nearby Jackson Park were being prepped for the Columbian Exposition. Now, at this point, I think it's important to go through the supposed list of victims. Some believe there were over 200 victims, others 27, but it seems that there's a master list of nine that is pretty consistent. I'd also like to point out that the hotel portion of Holmes Murder Castle was never opened. He likely never intended to use it as a hotel and just used the ruse of opening a large and luxurious hotel to swindle investors out of their money. Holmes was a con man and a swindler for sure. I'm not going to list all 27 supposed victims here, but you can find a comprehensive list at MysteriousChicago.com. I'm not going to list all 27 supposed victims here, but you can find a comprehensive list by Adam Seltzer at MysteriousChicago.com. He does a lot of research and is a tour guide and Atlas Obscura field agent with 10 plus years of experience in the city of Chicago. He's also often called upon to offer expertise on varying topics on the History Channel and the Travel Channel. He's also got a podcast called Cemetery Mixtape, which is phenomenal. Absolutely worth a listen. 
So the four known victims of Holmes are Ben, Howard, Alice, and Nellie Peitzel. These four were murdered in the autumn of 1894, and their bodies were recovered. All but Howard's body were positively identified. Howard's remains were burned and could not be identified. Holmes only received a conviction on Benjamin Peitzel's murder and never stood trial for the other three. The assumed victims of Holmes are Julia and Pearl Connor, who were both murdered in 1891, Emmeline Sagrand, who was murdered in 1892, and Minnie and Nanny Williams, who were murdered in 1893. Julia, Emmeline, and Nanny and Minnie Williams' remains were never recovered. There is speculation that Holmes sold their skeletons to medical schools and disposed of the rest of their remains. Holmes claimed that Julia and Emmeline died during illegal abortions, and Holmes admitted to one of his attorneys that he had killed Julia. It's unlikely that Holmes would have been convicted of their murders, as there were no bodies or evidence to prove it. Bones found in the basement of the castle were said to be those of Pearl Connor, but forensics was a new idea at the time, and the bones couldn't be positively identified. It's believed, however, that Holmes did, in fact, kill the five women. Seltzer states on his website that newspapers at the time would publish a story about Holmes or the castle investigation, the finding of remains, etc. And authorities would come to find out that the items found weren't human remains at all. This correction wouldn't be published, and so the original story would be the only one available. He also states that writer Herbert Asbury suggested that at one time the total number of Holmes victims could be in the hundreds, and that this is simply not true. In an effort to make some fast money, and possibly to avoid the death penalty, Holmes began writing his memoir in prison. He cut a deal with Philadelphia publishers Burke and McFetridge in 1895, the year after his arrest. The book is titled Holmes' Own Story, and a copy cost 25 cents. The book itself was likely another scam to trick the public into believing that he was simply a man trying to make his way in the world and squeeze a penny out here and there when he could. His crimes had been published in every newspaper at the time, painting him as a horrifying monster and degenerate swindler, and he likely created the manuscript to further con those individuals who read the accounts of his heinous crimes into believing that he never perpetrated the murder of which he was convicted. It was also likely to explain away the other murders he was suspected of committing, but never stood trial for. In the author's preface to the original edition, Holmes laid out his intentions for the book. Holmes writes, quote, The following pages are written under peculiar circumstances, perhaps the most peculiar that ever attended the birth of a literary work. Incarcerated in prison and awaiting trial for the most serious offense known to the law, it has been written only after mature deliberation against the advice of my friends and in direct opposition to the positive instructions of my counsel, who have attempted in every way to dissuade me from its publication. But the circumstances under which I am placed, in my judgment, make it imperative that I should disregard all of these considerations. 
For months, I have been vilified by the public press, held up to the world as the most atrocious criminal of the age, directly and indirectly accused of the murder of at least a score of victims, many of whom have been my closest personal friends. The object of this extended and continuous enumeration of alleged crimes has been apparently to create a public sentiment so prejudiced against me as to make a fair and impartial trial impossible. My friends have been alienated, my nearest kindred plunged in grief, and the world horrified by the bloody recital of imaginary crimes. I feel therefore impelled by an imperative sense of duty to publicly deny these atrocious calumnies. The following pages will therefore be found to contain a simple and complete narrative of my entire life and a full history of my associations and dealings with Mr. and Mrs. B.F. Peitzel and their children, the alleged disappearance of Minnie Williams, and the tragic death of her sister, Nanny. My sole object in this publication is to vindicate my name from the horrible aspersions cast upon it and to appeal to a fair-minded American public for a suspension of judgment and for that free and fair trial which is the birthright of every American citizen and the pride and bulwark of our American Constitution. H.H.M. End quote. Holmes goes on to outline every moment he spent with his supposed victims. The stories appear to be well rehearsed in his mind, and I wonder how much time he actually spent during the act of murdering each of these people, and the time he spent in prison putting all this together. Upon reading the entire collection of Holmes' written work, I can only say that the man was a pathological liar. At the end of the memoir, as it's published by Pernilis Media, there's a confession letter. Holmes sent this letter to the Philadelphia Inquirer, and toward the end he states, quote, The least I can do is to spare my reader a recital of the victim's cries for mercy, his prayers and finally his plea for a more speedy termination of his sufferings, all of which upon me had no effect. Finally, when he was dead, I removed the straps and ropes that had bound him and extinguished the flames and a little later poured into his stomach one and a half ounces of chloroform. I knew that he was dead. It has been asked why I did this after I knew that he was dead, what possible use it could have served. My answer to this is that I placed it there so that at the time of the post-mortem examination, which I knew would be held, the coroner's physician would be warranted in reporting that the death was accidental and due to an explosion of a cleaning fluid composed of benzene and chloroform, and that the chloroform had, at the time of the explosion, separated from the benzene and passed into his stomach. And upon receipt of such intelligence, I believed the insurance company would at once pay the full amount of the claim." End quote. On May 8, 1896, the New York Times published an article titled, Holmes Cool to the End. It reads as follows. Holmes stepped forward and spoke, pallid, naturally, after his incarceration, 
There was no other evidence of any fear or disquiet. He spoke slowly and with measured attention to every word, a trifle low at first, but louder as he proceeded, until every word was distinctly audible. Gentlemen, he said, I have a very few words to say. In fact, I would make no statement at this time, except that by not speaking, I would appear to acquiesce in life in my execution. I only want to say that the extent of my wrongdoings in taking human life consisted in the deaths of two women, they having died at my hands as the result of criminal operations. I wish to also state, however, so that there will be no misunderstanding hereafter. I am not guilty of taking the life of any of the Peitzel family, the three children or father, of whose death I am convicted and for which I am today to be hanged. That is all. As he ceased speaking, he stepped back and kneeling between fathers Daly and McPaik, joined with them in silent prayer for a minute or two. Again standing, he shook the hands of those about him and then signified his readiness for the end. Holmes swung by the neck until dead, approximately 20 minutes because his neck apparently didn't snap like it was supposed to. He is buried outside Pennsylvania at Holy Cross Cemetery. His remains were encased in cement and buried 10 feet deep to deter anyone from using his body for dissection. As Holmes stated in his memoir, I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. That's it for this week, dear listeners. I'll be back again next week with more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. That's me. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated. And the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram, at IdentityPod, and on Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to Podcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please be sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure that you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to those who have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps. 